We are going to begin this morning a series in, uh, in Revelation. Um, it's always an interesting place to go. So there's usually, uh, th- there's different groups of people. So one group, when you say you're going to be in Revelation, gets really, really, really excited um, because, uh, how do I? So there, there's a group of people that, that's like, awesome, I get to go to church and hear about like dragons and, um, and like sorcery and witchcraft and other things. And so for, for those people, Revelation is like a Christian cleaned up version of, of like Game of Thrones uh, from, from HBO. And since a believer should not watch that, you can come listen to Revelation. That's what you, what you get. And so some people are like, awesome. And then there's other people who, who are like, oh my goodness, uh, when I was a kid, they used to use that to scare me. I don't really want to go and listen to anything on Revelation because I don't want to be like freaked out. And that whole thing is that whole thing is scary. There's people in be, between there, and so Revelation is, is an interesting one, especially in in the last 120 years in Western culture, because uh, because of how over the last 120 years uh, Revelation has been has been used. And so even when I was talking about uh, uh, with some guys about about doing it, uh, one of the guys had been from uh, um, from. Uh, from a church that used to regularly do like prophecy conferences and and talk about prophecy and talk about that and he's like oh my goodness don't do that it's so bad and I'm like no that's that's not what we're going to do but even in our culture there seems to be some interest in this this book uh, but the interest in the way they're interested in it is I think um, it is in itself interesting. So I, I drove by the Seventh-day Adventist church yesterday, and they were going to have a prophecy conference, and they were going to unlock the key to Revelation. Uh, I, was, I was watching something on, online. I was, uh, I was looking for a basketball game on Periscope, and I noticed that there was a guy who was going to, once again, give us the key to Revelation. It was uh, his, The title of his thing was The Illuminati, How Revelation is Coming True Now, right? And so all of these sorts of things. So I don't know what visceral gut-level reactions you have, have to, to Revelation, I don't know how you've, you've heard it presented, but um, I want to kind of this morning walk through how we're going to talk about, about Revelation, hopefully connect that to the history of how Revelation has been talked about and how it's been, been used in, in the church. So actually I'm going to start just by reading you Revelation 1, 1 through 3, and then we'll, we'll talk through that. So Revelation 1 says, if you want to look it up, your device, your Bibles, otherwise it's on the, uh, on the screen, but Revelation uh, chapter 1 Verse 1 says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So, this is, uh, this is the introduction to the book. It actually gives us, uh, gives us sort of our marching orders for how to deal with it, what we, should, what we should do with it, because we need to ask ourselves some questions. And so what, there's three exhortations or three things to do, the, do with the book of Revelation. One is to read aloud. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things of much soon place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness 
the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud this prophecy. And so when we read it aloud, that is one thing we're supposed to do with it. We're supposed to read aloud, and blessed are those who hear, and blessed are those who keep what is written in it. So the first thing we're going to do with Revelation is point out this, that, that it is made to be read aloud. This is a book for the church. It's a book that was, was designed and written to, to the church. It was made to be read aloud in the church. It would have meaning and impact at the given time in the church, right? So this book written by the Apostle John, which we'll get into later, was, was sent to the church, and it was to testify to something that had meaning and value at that time and at that place to the church, but also at all times and all places to the church. It is a, it is a church book. It is made to be read aloud. Second thing we're supposed to do with it is we're supposed to hear it. Okay, what does it say? What is it telling us? How do we apply what it, what it has said? And so uh, not only is it uh, a book that's made for the church, predominant or not predominantly, but first to the church in which it was written to, or the churches that it was written to, uh, but it is made to be heard. It's made to, to have impact. It has application to the, to the churches, uh, first to the seven it was written to, and then to all, all the churches. And then the third thing we're supposed to do after we read it aloud, after we hear it, is to keep what is written in it. Right? So we, we read it aloud, we hear what it says, we hear what it is, is saying to us, and we keep what is said in it, right? which means we obey what is written in, in Scripture. And so Revelation, in this sense, is like all other Scripture. The Apostle Paul himself says that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, it's useful for rebuke. All of those things that are, that are said there become true of Revelation or are true of Revelation as well. So... This first, my, my first point and my first idea I want you to catch here is that this is a book for the church, right? It was a book when it was written for the churches. Uh, John writes this and he addresses specifically uh, the churches in Asia. Uh, we assume that this book is written by the Apostle John. We assume that he wrote it uh, for a time when he was in, in, uh, in captivity or in exile on the Isle of Patmos. We assume that John was the, the bishop to the churches in Asia, or the leader of the churches in Asia, and he writes to them this prophecy given to him by, uh, by Jesus and given to him by God for the edification and the use and the application of the churches that he wrote it to. Uh, let me just give you a brief parenthesis about how we typically deal with... In general, we, are, uh, we affirm two, two things. One is the historic Protestant interpretive method, which is to say we believe that the New Testament interprets what happens in the Old Old Testament. That's historically how Protestants have, have uh, interpreted Scripture. The, the even better way to say this is that we interpret all Scripture in light of what Jesus has done and what Jesus had did. Uh, the other thing we want to point out is that we also believe in what's called the historical grammatical interpretive method, which means that we ask ourselves when we, when we approach a book of, of Scripture is, what did this mean in history to the people that it was originally written to? What did this book mean in history to the original audience that it was written to? So if we're going to approach the book of Revelation, the first question we have to ask is not, 
not the the question that even as it tells us here to hear keep tells us to keep and apply it we can't apply it until we know what it means and we can't know what it means until we know what it meant to the people it was written to we interpret it historically we also and this will be especially important in revelation we interpret scripture grammatically in other words what kind of literature is it um and so that's that's our second question we had three first questions or uh, there's three exhortations we are to read this aloud we are to hear scripture we are to keep scripture but that leads to two questions what is this and how do we read it what is this is the question that's answered by grammatical interpretive method meaning we look at a piece of scripture and we go what kind of literature is this you know this as well as i do you do not interpret a um an email from your boss in the same way that you would interpret a poem from your spouse, right? And now some of you are saying, if a, my spouse wrote me a poem, I would interpret a lot. My spouse would seem to have gone crazy because my spouse has never written me a poem. But we're going to assume uh, we're going to assume facts, not in evidence, that your spouse is particularly romantic, and your spouse has desired to write you a poem, or at least plagiarize a poem from somebody else and send it to you, right? If they did that, you know that if you receive a memo from your boss, please do this, this, this. It is to be understood differently than if you receive a poem from your spouse. We know this in, uh, throughout Scripture, which is to say that we understand when Paul says various things and uh, when he writes a letter to the churches, we interpret them or understand how to interpret them differently than what he writes in the, in the Psalms or in, in a book like uh, Song of Solomon, for instance, which is highly figurative books. How do we interpret them? What kind of literature are they? This question becomes particularly important in dealing with the book of Revelation because what kind of, what kind of literature is it and how do you interpret that kind of literature? Because the question is, what is this book? And it needs to be answered before we can answer how do we read this book, right? So this book is, and everybody uh, will, will almost uniformly agree with this, this book is what's called apocryphal uh, literature, right? It, it's actually hybrid because it's a mix between apocryphal literature and a cyclical letter or an epistle like the Apostle Paul would have sent. But it's an epistle or a letter sent to the churches written in the form of apocryphal literature. Now, most of you are going but I have no idea what apocryphal literature is. That's okay. We'll, we'll answer, okay? This is, um, there's a lot of different ways to answer what apocryphal literature is. The best way, I think, to answer what uh, apocryphal literature is is to say this, is that it was the comic book writing of the day. It was written in a format in which, in our modern day, we might encounter in, in, a, in a comic book. Especially if you were to encounter a comic book that, that was written in a way that, uh, that contrasted good versus evil, and you could see the heroes and the villains, and it, it used a kind of language that was highly figurative and talked about things that, uh, that we know don't exist. And so if someone chose to write a letter to you and they wanted to make a point to you, but they used a comic book instead of a poem, right? So your friend wants to uh, write to you, and instead of a poem or a direct letter, do this, 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 they choose to write to you, and they use the format of a comic book. It might be highly figurative, 
But in this case, if they wanted you to apply it and do something to it, and they wanted to, uh, wanted to point to a greater truth, that, that would be apocryphal language in general. It's highly figurative. It functions in, in its own time as a literature, similar to how comic books would function in our own day, right? They're, they're highly figurative. They have all kinds of things going on, all kinds of symbols. Some of you uh, who are highly into comic books spend lots of time talking about what those symbols mean or what those symbols could mean and what is the idea, what is the idea behind this. Um, we have uh, a group of us online, a little Facebook group called uh, comic, book, uh, comic Book Discussion, and all the time people are posting different theories predominantly about what's going to happen next in Star Wars, but occasionally about what happens next in Civil War, right? And so people are posting all of these kinds of things. And so some people read those and, and are prone to, um, to see this conspiracy theory or that conspiracy theory or that conspiracy theory behind anything or this. And it's fun when you're talking about something like a comic book movie. However, when you're approaching the book of Revelation, there's one other hybrid that's in there, which is this is a book of prophecy. So this is a book of, it's a, it's a cyclical letter written in the form of, of an apocalyptic, uh, an apocalyptic format, the comic book of its day, but it's written prophetically so that it's true and it has a point to make and it has an application, application to make. And so what has happened then is that that has caused people to not be exactly sure how to apply and how, how to use that. So what is this? This is apocryphal language. How do we read it? We read it in historical grammatical context, right? What did this mean to the original hearers? How did they apply it? And how do we apply that to us, right? The last part of the historical grammatical context is what did it originally mean to them? And how does that apply to us, right? We do that, but then that begs two other questions about how to deal with the apocryphal language. And, and that is this. Should we read the book of Revelation, as some people say, we must read the book of Revelation literally. In fact, they have a saying, uh, always approach Revelation literally unless the text tells us to approach it otherwise. And then there's the other group that says, no, we should interpret it spiritually, or, or they, they might say um, uh, symbolically. And this other group, in fact, I read a commentary this week, say outright that when it comes to Revelation, we should turn the dictum on its head and always interpret the scripture of Revelation symbolically unless the text tells us to interpret it literally. So we need to ask that question because it comes down to an important thing. We can't get into what is going to happen in the, um, in the next chapters, right? And I'm sorry if you were... Uh, if you were looking for all the dragons and, and stuff this week, those happen in, in later chapters. We'll get there, but we need to know what we're talking about. Because the thing I do not want to do to you is to give you a fantastic, wonderful, exciting sermon that is, is full of baloney. That, that's not where we want to go. And so we need to ask, do we interpret this literally or do we interpret this symbolically? This, this is a question that, that we need to ask, and it's a question that's going to guide everything we, we do. So... Let's just talk about a literal interpretation of Revelation for a minute. Here's what I have found in my experience with people who claim to interpret Revelation literally, right? So I don't know if you guys have read Revelation. I don't know if, you, um, if you've spent time in it. But there are some things go down in Revelation that are pretty fantastical, so to speak. Some pretty interesting things. There are beasts. There's, there's like seven-headed beasts. And then, there's, and then there, there's, there's lions and there's... there's, there's there, there's, there's dragons and there's battles. There's all this sort of fantastical stuff. And some people would say, we need to interpret that 
literally, right? And so I remember one passage uh, later on that, that describes... Um, that describes a beast that has the tail of a scorpion, the body of a horse, the hair of a woman, the teeth of, of, of something else. And so my question then for those who would interpret the, that, that verse literally, or those passages literally, is what is that, right? Because what I don't find is a lot of people actually interpreting what I used to do when I've, when I've preached Revelation before is I've read that verse to people and given them a piece of paper and had them draw that. I'm like, okay, draw this horse of a T, body of this, uh, tail of a scorpion, hair of a woman, draw that. And what you should get, if that is literally, what should you get? Some creature that we've never seen, right? Fitting for Harry Potter story about the fantastic beast. That's what you should get if you interpret that literally. Here's what I've come to understand, is that the chief, um, the chief promoters of interpreting this scripture literally, culturally speaking, meaning in our culture, are a guy named... Tim LaHaye uh, and Jerry Jenkins. They wrote a, a little series called Left Behind. They wrote that book and it's become influential. In fact, so influential that people in churches all over say, think that that is how the church has historically interpreted Revelation. They're like, oh, Revelation? Let me check my commentary. That book's not a commentary. That's fiction in like literally every way. We'll get into it. But that, that's a book of fiction, right? And so people start to believe that that is what their, their church has believed. I talked to people from, from historic churches that would actually have, have no association with that interpretation, and they've come to believe that that's what the church believed. But So Tim LaHaye, if you take that, that, those verses about the, the tail of a scorpion, the, the teeth of a horse, that, that fantastical uh, description, he would say we must interpret Scripture literally, then... He and his buddies would say that the literal interpretation of that is a Huey helicopter. Now, help me here. I'm not an English teacher. And I know that we have confusion in our society about literally, right? Because my children literally say it all the time. And I just used it correctly. Because literally, they're just always saying that. That's actually figuratively, right? That's... So we don't know what literally means in our, our culture. But I know that the people who say that they interpret Revelation literally typically don't. Because if you're going to say that you're interpreting something literally and you say it's a helicopter, I need to say that this, I need the book of Revelation to say, and then they got into their Huey P-50 whatever helicopter. That's literally. If the text says it had the tail of a scorpion, it needs to literally have the tail of a scorpion. And so... Uh, maybe on this whole literally thing, this literally confusion on the word, we actually have Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins to blame. Maybe they're the ones who brought it in, into culture, right? Because they do not seem to understand in, in, in context what the word literally means. So the question is, so how do we interpret Revelation? My argument would be that almost no one, no one interprets Revelation literally. I actually did meet a dude because we were having this discussion right? And he's like, look, I got this new End Times book. He had an End Times magazine. By the way, just a side note, beware of the dude who walks around with End Times magazines, okay? That can be minorly interesting for a few minutes, but you better have some extra time, and you better be ready for some super weirdness, you know? Um, like, the dude who carries around his own End Times magazine is probably not the dude you're inviting over for cards on Friday night. But anyways, this dude had his In Times Magazine. He was going to show me. And then this, and this is awesome. Look at this. And I said, so I asked him. I said, now it's interesting because you use the word literally. 
And I said, so I opened it up and I read to him the story of one of the, of one of the beasts. And I said, what would you, what would you describe that? He said, no, exactly like that. And said, so what you're saying is you believe that it's actually a beast with the tail of a scorpion. And he's like, yes. And I'm like, okay, um, awesome, because you're amazingly consistent. But it's so strange, I don't know what to do with it anymore, right? Like, good, you win on consistency, but you don't win on understanding how Scripture functions in the place that, that it functions in. And, and I do not think that, that knowing the name of God, knowing how God works in history, knowing how God has worked in history, knowing that God is the creator, knowing that God is the, the founder of, of science and everything that is, I do not think that we should, should be expecting creatures that do not exist to suddenly exist so that, that God can create at the end of time what would be an epic science fiction movie, right? I don't think that that's the way to understand it. So, uh, that said, I think you understand that I'm going to imply that the correct way to understand Revelation is, is not through rote literalism, but through, uh, but through understanding that Revelation should be interpreted symbolically, okay? Now, you need to understand that the people who say that they interpret Revelation literally because they, they, they waged um, a culture war, because they have more books, uh, because of many things, because of uh, movements in the United States will say, well, we're the biblical ones, and anyone who doesn't uh, interpret Revelation literally is not biblical. They're not, and so they, they will call a lot of names. Here's, here's my thing. We need to go to Scripture, and we need to ask ourselves, how do we read this text determined by that text? In other words, what is the historical grammatical context? What happens in, in the text? So how we should read the text should be determined by the text. So let's just dive into this text just for, for a minute. Uh, this says here in verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. Right? Show his servants. Show is, is a, a symbol word. And I won't say a lot more about it because we're going to build to that. But it's a symbol word. He's giving, it's a, it's a picture word. It starts off, it doesn't say, here are the things that God told his servants. So it said, here are the things he did to show his servants what must take place. Now, a person could say, well, he's going to show them and he's going to give this. And that's what's literally going to, but I don't think that the language and the way it's written can be argued that for a rote literalism. But we'll, we'll continue. Also in verse 1. Uh, this is the revelation which God gave to show his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant. Made known. You see the word made known. The, the ESV and actually a lot of English translations translate made known. The word made known is translating though a different word from, uh, from the Greek and from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we're going to get to in a minute. And that word means to signify. In the way they used it, it could mean uh, giving signals like, hey, uh, like when you started a race, if you had, a, had a, a flag, you put the flag down, start the race. It could mean that, but what the likely meaning and the way it's used in literature outside of scripture and, and it's used in scripture is the word symbolize or to signify is to symbolize. So when he says made known, you could, and, and it would probably be uh, the most accurate way to read this verse, you could read it as the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He symbolized it by sending his angel. 
And so we're going to argue that even in the first verses that God suggests in the text that he is going to symbolize it. The way that this is happening, it's not just on the way to that word, but it's on the way of understanding this. Is what John is doing in this prologue is a to Daniel chapter 2. And so understanding, one of the things we need to do when we look at Revelation is understand what's going on in the Old Testament. Uh, John is going to start off in his prologue by making a long allusion to Daniel chapter 2. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, verses 28 through 30 and verse 45. And I'm going to show these to you uh, for a minute here. So in Daniel, here, here's what's happened. Daniel is a, is a prophet. He's called to interpret the dream of the king. Right? The king has had this wild, amazing uh, 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 dream. And it has all of these things go down in it. It has all of these, these pictures happen in the dream. And Daniel, God's prophet, gets called in to interpret the king's dream. That's kind of the background of what happens. Then in Daniel chapter 2, uh, it says this, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known, there's our word, he has made known, it's that word shown, it's that word that means symbolize, right? That word, he has symbolized to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days, your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed to you, O king, as you lay in the bed came the thoughts of what would happen, what would be after this. And he who reveals the mysteries made known, I'm sorry, that first made known was actually show. Here's the problem with English translations of things that are not English. We sometimes use the same English word to translate two different words. That first word was actually shown. It appears in our text too. But the second one is signify or, or symbolize, right? Uh, so he has made known or, or uh uh, what was is to be, but as for you, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have uh, more uh, that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation might be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Then verse 45, he skips ahead. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that's the picture. That that's what happened in the dream. Uh, a hand comes and it cuts uh, cuts stone out of the mountain, and there's no human hand to do it. Just as you saw this, and that it broke into pieces. So the, the stone falls down, it breaks into pieces. Uh, iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the breaks apart. A great God has made known, here's our word, made known, symbolized, signified to you. He has symbolized to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain in its interpretation, sure, okay? John is actually, uh, is, is, is in his prologue, very much using this format, right? He is he is well aware of what has happened in, in Daniel. The reason we know this is because the, in, in Daniel, as in John, four things happen in the prologue that happen no place else in Scripture except for these two places. And they are this. And so uh, I will read them to you in, in Daniel and show them to you in John. It says this, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, right? There's a God, the word reveals in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus reveals revelation. Though that's a one for one, right? And he has made known, in this case, the made known there is he has shown, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar in Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant, right? Show, show. So he reveals revelation, made known, show, show. Uh, your dream and the visions of your head. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed, came these. What would be after? 
after this. In Revelation, what would be after this is concerning what must take place after this. Right? It, it's, it's, it's a recapitulation or it's a restatement of what is happening in, in the book of Daniel. John himself is very aware. The book of John, by the way, has more references to the Old Testament than all of the other books of the New Testament combined. He is going to again and again and again make reference to the Old Testament. And he's not going to do it usually through quotes, but he's going to do it through allusion. And this is one of those, those allusions. So what would be after this? And then if we skip down to the most important one for us in verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand and that it broke into pieces, iron, bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known, a great God has symbolized to you what shall be after this? So in Daniel, we have revelation. We had God showed concerning what would come past, and he signified it or symbolized it to them. That is the exact same, um, same methodology. It's the exact same word order. It's the exact same point that John uses. And so there is awareness when John writes from Scripture that he is using the format established by Daniel. He is going to say the kinds of things that Daniel said, and he's going to make points like Daniel made. It is the same kind of literature. It is the same kind of writing. It, it, it is the same thing. And so then we understand through the word use of the word symbolize that God is going to use symbols throughout Revelation to teach us something important. And those symbols are not going to usually be interpreted literally unless the text tells us to interpret them literally. How do we know? Because we have the example of Daniel 2, which John is clearly referencing here in, in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, the, the, what happens is that he dreams of, of a mountain that's, that a stone's cut from a mountain with no human hand, that it breaks into pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, right? And so if Daniel or were to be interpreted literally, what you would literally expect is a literal mountain with something literally cut into it. Something would fall from it. When they broke, they would literally be iron, bronze, gold, and clay. You would expect those things literally. But God uses symbols to teach, or to say through Daniel to the king, that those things are representatives of kingdoms and of nations and other things. They function symbolically. They are not literally gold. They aren't literally clay. They, aren't liter they are symbolic of what God is going to, to do. The same with Revelation. And so I will be upfront with you on this. We are going to understand um, we are going to understand Revelation as apocryphal language. We are going to understand Revelation in historical grammatical context. We are going to interpret Revelation symbolically unless the text explicitly tells us to interpret it literally. We are going to do this because this is consistent with Scripture. Scripture gets to interpret Scripture. Scripture gets to tell us how to read Scripture. The text itself, we affirm that what is being said here is that God intends to symbolize to John those things which must take place next. So, this is then Apocrypha. How do you read Apocrypha? It's symbolic, and these symbols are meant to tell us about other things. They're word pictures. So, I would explain it like this, is that... Nebuchadnezzar was literally in a dream. John is not literally in a dream, but he's taken up, so it functions like a dream sequence. I don't know if you ever have odd dreams, but whenever I remember a dream, they're usually super weird, right? Weird stuff happens in people's dreams. What people do not typically read dream in or have dream sequences in is in, in highly detailed, highly literal stuff. Like no one does calculus or the chemistry homework 
in, in their sleep. You have never prepared for your next day at work and written that important memo in your dream usually. Usually, you're, like maybe some of you, you do, but I don't think that's normative, right? Usually our dreams are odd. And we're not used to, uh, because we're not prophets and we're not inspired by the Lord God, or these things, we're not used to our dreams having meaning but essentially what happens to John is he's taken up into what functions like a dream sequence. He's shown all these pictures, and these pictures symbolize something that is true, but it is not literal. And let us just go back, because I, I do think it's appropriate to say that when people say, I do not interpret Revelation literally, they will be attacked as being unbiblical. My argument would be that nobody interprets Revelation literally. They interpret it with a different symbol right? Because when helicopters start showing up, you have not interpreted that text literally. You've not. You have interpreted it figuratively, and it's just So they may have interpreted it physically. We, on the other hand, will not interpret it that way. There, there would be some other arguments from those people. Should we read it chronologically? Should we read it this way? What is it telling? Here's, here's what we believe. This is apocryphal language. It's symbolic, and it's made to be symbolic. This is John in what is like a dream sequence. He is taken up. The reason he's taken up is because he has a message that he is supposed to deliver. The message is told from him, and it's actually in verse 4, right? Uh, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. He's given a place to address this message. So if he's taken up, he's told to symbolize this or give the message to a group, and that message is the seven churches. If it's the seven churches, then we text mean to the seven churches who were the original recipients of that and how do I apply that to my life today? The reason we need to do that especially with Revelation is because what often happens is people do not ask what it means to the people in the church uh, 19, 1,900 some years ago about, right? John writes somewhere between 80, 70 and 80, 100, right? We don't often ask that question, what did it mean to those churches in Asia? What we typically say is, what does this book tell us about what's going to happen in the future? And we try and take it, and we try to make it, and make it into an exciting tale of what might happen in the future, or what might happen next, and we try to make it about predicting the next event in, in history. Typically, this does not go well for people. People have made whole cottage industries of predicting what happens next from Revelation, predicting which country is which country. Uh, in my youth, growing up in, in the 80s, everything was about Russia, right? It was actually about Russia in East Germany, usually. Gog and Magog. The funny thing is that God has a great sense of humor. Like he took, it was USSR. The USSR and, and, and East Germany, he, he eliminated both of them, right? Russia is still there currently, but not at its, like, I know that there are all kinds of people who made that interpretation actively rooting for Russia's comeback. They're like, please make me right. Please make me right. Come back, Russia. Uh, East Germany's not even there anymore. It's like gone. And so God, has, we, we, we sometimes use it to predict what's going to happen in the future. And we mean that in our future. The important question then is, what would have it meant to the people in the church in Asia? If the correct interpretation of Gog and Magog was the USSR, and East Germany, what possible interpretation of this scripture could have there been in the first century when it was written to the churches at Asia? That is an incorrect and improper way to use scripture. And so people will attack and say, well, that's not literal. That's, that's, I'm saying, you're using scripture improperly. That is not how God wrote this book, and it's not how he meant for it to be. And we should use scripture rightly. And so I'll gladly take attacks about, about 
anything if I'm standing on the scripture. And we will stand on the scripture, meaning that this book had meaning to the churches that it was originally written to. And even though we believe that the seven churches, we'll get into this next week, that they're representative of other churches around the area and they're representative of a whole, it had to have meaning to them. If it had no meaning to them, there's no way to do historical grammatical interpretation. There's no reason for God to send it to them. And so sometimes people treat the book of Revelation like a puzzle to be figured out to tell them what is going to happen to them and is going to happen later on for this, this mythical thing called the end times right? We will not, as we go through this book, affirm that way of using scripture. We're going to understand it uh, like this, and we, we think this is a, the way it's under, been understood historically. Uh, we think this, this does justice to the text. We're going to understand that Revelation is not chronological, meaning a lot of people start at, at, at Revelation 1, and they work to Revelation 21, and go, all of those things happen chronologically. It's step, 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 step. Now, we will affirm that Revelation 21, uh, Revelation 22, that those are, those are um, the, the, that certain parts of those certainly talk about the end, and that the end is chronologically at the end. But what we're not going to affirm is that all of the book leads us in a chronological line there. Rather, we're going to understand Revelation not as chronological but cyclical. Right? And I'll show this to you as we work through it. But what you're going to see as you encounter Revelation is seven cycles repeating the same view of the same period of history from seven different uh, viewpoints each time. Right? So there was this movie that came out uh, years ago uh, that I don't think anybody saw. And so this would be a much better example if other people would have seen it. I didn't see it either. I just saw the advertisement. But it would have been a good example of people seeing it. But this movie, I think it was called like Viewpoint or The View or something. I'm completely making that up. I don't know what it's called. Right? Here's, here's what I know. Is that there was this movie where, where someone gets assassinated in, in a crowd. And then the movie is vignettes or stories from each different person in the crowd's viewpoint. Right? And so... If, if someone in this room were, were assassinated, there would be a bunch of different viewpoints and you would see it from different angles. It retells the story of how they saw it from the angles. Revelation essentially functions a lot like that. What is happening is John is being given various dream sequences or various, various sequences that I think function like, like a dream. And he's seen things, but what he's being seen is cyclically is the same expression of a period of time in history uh, that from a different viewpoint. Uh, Beale says it this way, the book consists of a series of parallel visions in which God expresses the same truths in different ways. Right? So we are going to say this, and I will be upfront about this. We believe that Revelation happens uh, cyclically, not chronologically. We believe that Revelation is not predominantly the story of things which are going to happen in some far off place, but rather is the story of things that are happening now, have happened now, and will continue to happen until God brings about the consummation, which does happen at the end of the book of Revelation. There is a marriage supper of the Lord. The, Jesus is coming back. He is establishing. We, we affirm all of those things are happening, but that the, the, the center part of the, of the book is cyclical expressions of a period of time in history that encompasses all of the time in history from Christ's first coming until his next coming. In other words, it is going to tell us the story of what is happening in every era in which the church has existed throughout all of history. So that when Jesus says, write this to the seven churches in Asia and gives them these 
uh, gives them various things that they need to work on and tells them those things. That is equally applicable to a church that existed in 500 AD, to a church that existed in 1000 AD, to a church that existed in the 1800s, to a church that exists in the year 2015. The story of Revelation is not a chronological outline of things that are going to happen, but rather a cyclical outline of all the things that are happening and will happen until God brings to consummation his kingdom. In fullness, so that when you read Revelation, you can apply it now by understanding that's what he was saying to the church at, at Ephesus. And because he said that at the church at Ephesus, he that at the church at Crosswinds, and we need to hear and obey and listen now. That is how, how we're going to approach this book. Now, we will then read this symbolically. I'll give you a comment here. Like, let's say you're like, well, I don't want to read it symbolically. I want to read it literally. If you can make a biblically tenable point through reading it literally, I will accept that as long as this. Jesus Christ must be the hero in the interpretation of Revelation. We will read Revelation, uh, we will read it symbolically, but at every point you will see that Jesus is the central point. He is the, he is the, he is the, he is the historical turning point. He is, he is the future hope. He is the, he is the one who creates and fulfills all of history. That is fine, as long as you also read it Christologically, because my fear with sometimes what happens in other readings of Scripture is that they do not read it Christologically anymore. As I said earlier this week, I said to someone, the problem is when reading Revelation as with life is that people will try and get you to focus on the dragon when Jesus is the man. And we will read this book again and again. You don't even have to agree with our understanding, right? I will argue this, is that that most other understandings of, of Revelation spawn from the last 110 years. They spawn from a specific, not most of uh, the, the, the literal viewpoint, uh, the, 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 those who would argue for a hyper-chronological sequence, those who argue those things. That springs from a period of time that's about 120 years ago. That's not the historical teaching of the church. And for me, when things are, are confusing and we, or when things need to be interpreted, I like to look to the text first and I go, I think the text is here, but what did the church teach historically? It's okay after looking at the text to ask yourself, am I being consistent with the history of the church? Meaning that when I deal with scripture, I don't want to be novel. Like, hey, I have this new idea. Look what I just found. No. Don't listen to me if I ever say that. Like, there's just nothing new. Right? And so... So we will read Revelation in, in this way. I'm fine as long as you are biblical, as long as your point is tenable, and you're reading it another way, as long as Jesus continues to be the point of everything that you read. As long as Jesus is the hero, as long as Jesus is the center, as long as the point leads to and from Jesus. When you get into talking too much about various nations, when you get into talking about various multiple different groups of, 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 of people, and those are separated from being one people of God with one king whose name is Jesus, then, then we, it's problematic. But if Jesus is the hero, then we'll be okay. That said, because we are going to read this symbolically with Jesus as the center, Christologically will be the key, the key to our interpretation. And so if you love Jesus, what I hope you will see is that we will not focus as much in, in the more controversial things, but we will focus more in the sure things, that Jesus is at the center of the book, 
that Jesus is the point. Okay? So, let's go back just for a minute to this question. Because we're supposed to read it aloud, we're supposed to hear it, and we're supposed to keep it. We had to answer, what is this and how do we read it? So given those, those things, this is how we're going to read it. We are going to read it Christologically. You will see in the coming weeks that we will make again and again and again and again this argument. That the Lamb who sits upon the throne is none other than Jesus Christ. That the Lion of Judah with the approaching kingdom is none other than Jesus Christ. We will argue that the one who holds in his hands the seals and opens them is none other than Jesus Christ. And the reason he opens the seals and what is contained in the seals is all of human history. And he is worthy to open them because of what he's done at the cross and because of who he is. And because he is God, he is unfolding and laying out history. So that what we hope that you encounter as we go through Revelation is this place where you are expanded in your view of who Jesus is. And you're expanded in your view of what Jesus has done. And you are excited in your worship by the fact that he is on the throne and you're excited in, 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 in your worship that he is the king and you're excited that he is the lamb who was slain to ransom people from every tribe language nation and race that you're excited by that not only that I hope that you will be encouraged the book of Revelation is written to people who are in persecution they're written to people who are in struggle and it's written to make this point even in the midst of struggle Jesus is still the lamb upon the throne and he is still the only worthy one to open the seals and as the one who opens the seals and unfolds history, your struggle is part of his plan, but don't worry, he's still God, and he's still good. And history is going to unfold in a way that the Lamb will receive his glory, and when the Lamb receives his glory, the followers of the Lamb will one day come to him in the marriage supper of the Lamb, in the consummation when his kingdom fully unfolds. The struggles of this time will be nothing compared to the glories of that time. Right? That's where we're going with Revelation. And so... How do we read it? We're going to read it Christologically, but it's for those of you who want to expand your worship. It's for those of you who want to expand your view of Jesus. It's for those of you, I will be honest with you, the last couple of weeks of my life have been weird and they have been a struggle. And almost every bit of that struggle has been about this. Things that are beyond my control are changing in ways that I did not enjoy and do not like and don't know what's next. And so... For me, a natural control freak who tries to control my situations, when I'm struggling, going, what's going on? I don't know what's next. I don't know what's happening. Frankly, I'm experiencing a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of internal depression. The book of Revelation is written for people like me to say this. The lamb who is upon the throne, who is worthy to open the seals, is the one who is controlling history. And he's got your history in his hands. And you don't have to be in control. He is. And so it's meant to expand our view of Jesus. So hold me to this, that I preach message after message after message after message about how Revelation expands our view of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and about the greatness of a coming time when there is a marriage supper of the Lamb, when we are with him. And our eyes no longer cry tears, and our bodies no longer feel pain, and our hearts no longer fear feel grief. But we are with him. That's this story. And we're going to look at it cycle again, cycle after cycle, where Jesus said, this is what I'm doing in history. So I'm hoping that we'll read it in a way that will help you make sense of, of, of your life, make, help you make sense of your struggles, help you make sense of your joys, help you make sense of your moments, but affirm at the end of it all that Jesus and Jesus alone sits upon the throne and he's in control. We're going to do that through symbol after symbol after symbol after symbol. And at the end of it, I hope what we're going to do is say the same thing that it says at the end of Revelation. 
Even so, Lord, come quick.